are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings, happy Friday. It is today's podcast, courtesy of Westwood One, available on iTunes and Stitcher as well, powered by CRTV. My name is Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with us as well. It is a Feedback Friday. We'll get to your feedback here in just a moment. But gentlemen, we just wrapped up today's show for CRTV. It was our weekly Dace Group Roundtable, reviewing the week that was. What do you want to tease the audience with, with what's to come later today at CRTV? Aaron. Um, I misunderstood the third topic, but the video introduction is still worth your time, I think. Yeah, the video introduction of the third topic, priceless. That's very well done. Didn't have anything to do with what we were talking about. But but, you know, in many respects, it actually does. It's just you took a different vantage point, but in many respects, it actually does. You're going to have to see it to truly appreciate it. Todd, what stood out to you? What do you want to tease? The difference of opinion on uh, the validity of Cory Booker as a future political heavyweight. I found that interesting. We're all over the map. And it's tough because you're analyzing what people whose worldview is vastly different from yours, what they are seeing. Right. You know, and, and so in some ways you almost have to turn yourself inside out to not project your own bias upon it, right? Because, I mean, that, that grandstanding last, uh, the other day, it was a total clown show from our, from our perspective. It's just not serious. But we're not... We're not its intended audience. So, CRTV.com, promo code DACE. If you're not yet a subscriber to CRTV.com, that's how you can access today's show and all the shows we've ever done and will ever do, at least until your subscription runs out. That's also how you can access all of the shows that we make available on CRTV each day from the great one, Mark Levin, Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame, and so much more. The network, the team is ever expanding here at CRTV. CRTV.com, promo code DACE. And yes, we do have monthly subscription options as well, if that fits better better into your budget. All right, let's get to some of the feedback you've sent to us at steve at stevedace.com or on Facebook or following us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Let's begin with Jonathan. He says, what message would you give to the church concerning the sanctity of human life Sunday? Every year the church loads buses and heads to DC for the March for Life. It's a it is a good thing and I'm not and I'm not suggesting people shouldn't go, but I always feel like for many people they are one-time wonders. It seems there would be something more productive or effective that people could do at home and more often. Would love to hear your thoughts as to what the church should be doing. Well, I definitely want to know what the three of you or the other two of you think about this. To me, I I think it's bittersweet to have a claim on hosting the annual largest protest march on, in Washington, D.C. And while I, and, and the reason I say it's bittersweet, guys, is because, one, I think that it shows, the sweet aspect of it is that it shows a tremendous sense of conviction. It is not convenient to walk you know, and march to get to Washington, D.C. It's not a cheap trip. Uh, and then to march in the dead of January, it's not necessarily the greatest weather in the world. So that takes a level of persistent conviction right there to be the force that the pro-life movement is 
there in in the nation's capital every January because Roe v. Wade come, came down in January of 1973. The bitter part of it, though, is having the largest perennial protest march reminds me of when I was doing sports talk radio and we had for those who are pro wrestling fans, legendary pro wrestler Harley Race on, who was coming to town. And his big claim to fame until Ric Flair took it from him is that he had won, he had the most times won uh, heavyweight, wrestling heavyweight champion of the world. And without thinking about it, when I'm interviewing him one morning and, and he said that and I just blurted out as a response. Well, doesn't it mean that he, he was bragging he had won it nine times? I said, doesn't that mean you've, but doesn't that mean you've lost it eight times? That was the sound on the other end of the line <laughs> when that happens. And uh, um, if you're still marching, that means you haven't won. I mean, the goal of our movement, I don't fault the march at all. I think the march clearly has value. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous reminder. My fear, though, is that the culmination of our activism every year is this march. Yeah. The goal should be, and, and I've never gone. I've never been invited to speak, and I've never been to it. Lots of my friends have. So I don't know what goes on in terms of strategy in and around the march. But, or what meetings are held when the heavyweights get together. But I'd like to know when or if has a conversation taken place about what has to happen for us not to meet here next year. What has to happen for us not to be ne- to, for for not to be necessary for us to be here five years from now? See where I'm going with this? Yeah. And and I'll just tell you, even though I've never been a part of the march, I've been a part of pro-life activism on a national scale all over the country. And when I ask those kinds of questions in meetings and around a lot of other pro-life leaders, they look at me like I'm from another planet. Because their only presupposition is, well, we need Roe versus Wade overturned. Okay, well, I don't agree with that legal theory, by the way. But for the sake of argument and unity, I'll accept that the majority of you do. What are you engineering in the courts, therefore, to create a case that would challenge the merits of Roe? See what I'm saying? Yes. It, the, the, the court doesn't, isn't just allowed to get up one morning and say, hey, we're going to overturn. Need, there needs to be a Dred Scott. We didn't just get Roe um, by um, osmosis. Jane Roe took her case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. What is it you are generating from a policy standpoint that will create a challenge in the courts that will cause the question of Roe to be considered? Because we really haven't done it since Casey, and that was in 1992. Aaron, when were you born? 93. Are you freaking kidding me? It's 25 years ago. A quarter century ago was the last time we put forth a case at the Supreme Court as a movement. That challenge didn't, didn't say, what babies are we allowed to save? At 20 weeks, 16 weeks, 8 weeks, third... Tri- but literally challenged the premise of Roe itself. I'm not suggesting we should cease doing cases that save as many babies as we can. I'm suggesting, what is your... I'm not even suggesting, I'm asking. What's your strategy for winning? For ending this? What are we engineering? What are we doing that will cause, if, you're stra- if you believe the legal theory that we can't get rid of abortion until, and we've gotten rid of a lot of abortions. I think I read today, what was this, 57 abortion clinics closed last year? That's incredible news. And the pro-life movement deserves a lot of credit for that. 
But what's ultimate winning look like? If you believe we can't get, truly get rid of this plight or this blight on our civilization until the courts overturn Roe, then we need to create something that causes the standing for the courts to reconsider the question of Roe, and we almost never do stuff like that, Todd. Yeah, I'll speak specifically for my church, uh, the Catholic Church. And while uh, Steve did say that the uh, number of evangelicals is the largest Christian group within the Republican Party, but in terms of a, a denomination— uh, the, the the Catholic Church is the largest. There's more Protestants than Catholics, but the Catholic Church is the single largest denomination. And it has a leadership structure and the world authority led by the Pope where it can have a huge impact if it wants to. Starting off at, right there in regular Mass, uh, it might be mentioned the march this weekend. The life issue might be it because of the march, but the, the the amount of times that the life issue is simply mentioned on a Sunday, and you don't, listen, every homily does not need to be about the life issue, but there are any number of moments to bring it up, and bring it up in stark phrases like human sacrifice, because that is what we are dealing with. And then you take that all the way to the leadership of the bishops. I mean, we've had nuns on the bus doing their thing for health care. Uh, we've got the bishops all over the place on immigration. Uh, th- there's just no way uh, most of them, certainly as a collective, and very few of them as individuals can look you in the eye, that this has been priority number one. And that's a tragedy. Aaron? Yeah, I would say uh, re when you're framing this topic, reframe it in the perspective of maybe some of the greatest evils um, that have been perpetrated in in modern times. Uh, this is thrown out there flippantly, and I know we don't want to make comparisons to Hitler or Nazis, uh, but it is, I believe, apropos when it comes to the abortion issue to compare it to a Holocaust, and that's because that's what we are seeing. It is of that scale. It's even bigger um, than a Holocaust, and so to reframe it in terms, as Todd alluded to, in, in stark terms like that, to paint a picture. It's not going to be a, a pretty picture, obviously, given the subject matter. But to paint a picture of just what we are doing, that hopefully will cause some impetus, some sense of urgency amongst uh, either your uh, parish or your congregation to really, really put this issue in the forefront of their minds, especially as it pertains uh, to what we do politically and what we are doing as a movement. And maybe at that point, some of the questions will start to be asked that Steve asked, which is, why has it been you know two and a half decades since the last time we actually had a, a court case that challenged any um, any level of the validity of Roe v. Wade? Maybe if you can create the sense of urgency, some of those questions will start to be asked. Let's continue. Uh, this is from Adam. <clears throat> Pardon me. He says, I listened to your podcast for the first time the other day. Hadn't heard of your show before. Really enjoyed it. So you've got a new viewer slash listener. I lived my life for years in such a way that from the outside looking in, you'd never known I was a Christian unless you asked me. I was addicted to opiates, pain pills, and heroin for years. It caused me to lose my career, driving privileges, home, 
even my wife of 10 years. Since then, God has changed my life and restored to me everything I've lost. I remarried the wife who had divorced me last year, and our relationship is better than it ever was. For three years now, I've had my current job. <clears throat> Pardon me, the best one I've ever had. God really, truly is good and faithful and always willing to offer love, mercy, and grace to us when we ask. Anyway, I appreciated your podcast and was especially struck by the statements made at the end that morality is ultimately mercy. The notion that, to paraphrase you guys, if at the end, uh, our theology, morality, it doesn't look like mercy and grace, we probably got it wrong. That seems true and right to me based on how I've seen the changes happen in my life, and it's something to strive for. Keep sharing the truth from Adam. Man, that, that makes you want to come back and do more. I mean, you, you do a good job also of when you get these privately, you forward the emails to us. Mm -hmm. uh, feels good. It does. It, it, I'll tell you this, just speaking for me on a personal level, it makes me much more interested in coming back to work the next day and discussing who's at fault for a government shutdown. Like we're in the third grade. Or, or who, didn't, who didn't put the toilet seat down? Or, or who didn't let the dog out and now has to clean up the dog poo? I, I mean, I, I, I know some of you are so immersed in that. And I used to be... Don't. There's no end, there's, there's no fulfillment there. It reduces politics to a sporting event. But at least, unless you're a British soccer fan or apparently a University of Kentucky fan who keeps threatening referees. Um, in extreme cases, most of us, even the most fanatic of fans know at the end, some losses take time to get over more than others, but you eventually know that it's just a game. You, you might not get over it 10 minutes later. You might not get over a day or two later. Way we lost to Ohio State in 2016, it took me about three days to get over that one. <laughs> All right, but eventually now I remember. I know it's just a game. It, it's not worth anything. It's it, it, that's all. We have a hard time looking at it that way with our politics because it's not just a game. It's how we decide how we're going to live amongst one another. But when we reduce it to merely a sporting event, who's to blame for this? I like this put down. I like, oh, I like that way you came back on that guy. I like that. We get the worst of both worlds. We get no meaningful policy and all the indigestion of your favorite sports team losing at the same time. There, there, nothing good happens. Nothing good. Terry in Alabama. I haven't told you guys this before, but I love your CRTV programs and watch every day. I've been recently catching up on the legalism to dualism episodes of the seven deadly worldviews. And I feel like crying because this is exactly what I need, what I think our country desperately needs to hear and to take to heart with action. I almost don't have the right words to say to you guys and express my appreciation for what you guys are doing, the work you've done on all of these episodes, and you're sharing it in a way that is easy to grab hold of and understand your thoughts on that aaron that's a typical especially for legalism not i shouldn't say typical but we've heard that type of reaction multiple times because i i think maybe uh we underestimate how uh, just how uh debilitating legalism is and i i get that the that the point of the 
that the uh, point of the email was about how this this needs to be uh, a message for the entire country, and uh, that's a great compliment. Uh, but it's not because of us; it's because of of um, what we are basing what we're saying upon. Mm-hmm. But at the uh, uh, touching on legalism again, I shared the story during the the worldview series about um, the guy who I ran into um, after. You know, seeing him years later and after he'd gone off the theological deep end and um, confronted him about some of the stuff that he was writing on his blog and how I felt uh, so good about myself for confronting him and um, finding in the process of researching legalism for this series that he was part of the Bill Gothard uh, movement, which is a highly, highly legalistic movement. Um, and he had personal training from going to camps and whatever else. And he went off. Some some of the paths that that took him on caused him later on to completely turn into a 180 and swing to the other side of the theological spectrum. And I think that that story is more common than we really know. Um, and so maybe, uh, again, these, these worldviews were put in a specific order, but I think a lot of people who have watched this and maybe need to watch this are either have been or are at the point of legalism or are coming out of that legalistic worldview. It is completely debilitating and it is not true grace. It, it is a corruption of, of, of the greatest good. This echoes the earlier question about, you know, other than the march, you know, what should the church be doing? And it just, the church has to realize how bad its catechesis has been for very long. And people just don't know what they don't know any longer. Mm-hmm. And they're hit by this. It's like, oh, if I had just known, my goodness, where's the burning building you want me to run into? Sometimes I'm sitting there in mass and I'm thinking, you know what you really need to do? And yet we have our our forms. We say our they are vital. But sometimes you need to shake up the form by just breaking out a little bit. And right at the beginning, appreciate I think it's time I remind you. Do, do you guys remember that you're all a bunch of sinners? I mean, just, like, really bad ones. It required that, that big bloody cross up there. You know, we we just get so locked in, and we just don't even have the ability until you are slapped in the face with it. And that's what, this is simultaneously a slap in the face that you did and a cool drink of water that you gave them, Steve. And that's why they're just like, I've been wandering the desert forever. Your relationship with your creator is like any other relationship in that it can become rote. It can become perfunctionary. It can, it can become stale. Um, if, if that connection and that intimacy is not removed or, or renewed, obviously intimacy between a husband and a wife is different, is different and takes a different physical form per se than intimacy between you and your God. But there's a reason why that analogy is used so, um, so frequently in the scriptures. Yet the Bible doesn't mention marriage. Didn't somebody tell you that on Twitter yesterday? <laughs> it, it's because it, that level of rejoining why does Paul say, let us, no, let us not give up meeting together? So that if you've had a terrible week, your kids have all been sick, the dog died, and you get up on Sunday morning and there's 25 feet of snow and you're like, I can't take it anymore, I just want to go back to bed. But if I don't go to church, I know I'm going to feel real guilty that I let God down. That's not what he meant. What's happening here 
you know, Jesus says his burden is easy and his yoke is light. You are putting a heavier burden and yoke upon you than God would. That's another form of idolatry, by the way. God doesn't love you any less if you just say, Lord, I love you. Right now, I just, I'm just going to crash. Any more than when my wife said to me, I was looking forward to us having some alone time after the kids went to bed last night. She's had a tough week. This morning, she had three appointments and she's got to go to the dentist and get a, a three fillings. And she's freaked out by dentists. And after the kids went to bed, she goes, would you mind it terribly if I just, I could just handle a good book and some alone time and I'd like to crash. I don't love her any less. That's, that's what trust in a relationship is. And if your church is telling you you can live any way you want and it won't matter to God or you have to live a certain way to matter to God, they're both wrong. I found this email interesting. I'm going to share this, and I'm not going to provide any commentary. I want you guys' instant reaction to it. Okay? Okay. This is from a gentleman named Tim. Our planet, our species will only find peace when we all finally accept that actually we're all brothers. Whatever path, combination of religious views or non-judgmental view helps us get there, I cannot spite my brothers if I see them walking that path of discovery. Most Christians believe in the brotherhood of man, but many don't practice it. Any creed that forces, takes away choice, or punishes differing views must be resisted in order to ensure all our brothers remain free to choose. Steve, also beware that your views stay open to different views. After all, Christianity is the epitome of syncretism, the blending of Christ's teachings and Judaism. Thank you for your efforts. I'm not going to say a word. I want you guys' reaction to what I just read from one of our listeners, viewers. Brother will be set against brother. The narrow gate. Not peace, but a sword. Um, no. Uh, it's, that's a, uh, that's John Lennon's Imagine. Yep. Um, it's a, it's a nursery rhyme. It has never existed even when people like you manage to pull something resembling that together for a little while it always breaks off into schism or is unsustainable past the next generation stop you, you forget christians just <laughs> look the look on todd's face just you look like a crossing guard watching a kid run into the road who wouldn't listen to you and you're like yeah just you've you've, you've screened and they want you're just can you just stop, please? Look, I mean, I have more patience. Look at humanity. More patience. And I, you didn't really get into your broader belief system, but you really, I, I'd rather be lectured uh, by a doctrinaire progressive about the way of life I must live. The you know the bake the cake bigot is just than that. Because if just just look around you, it doesn't happen ever. Just with this whole "can't we all just get along" thing, no. 
it's abundantly clear we can't short of the grace of God. At least we are we're here offering a possibility of getting to the bottom line that you are presenting. Uh, your heart's in the right place to to want a brotherhood of man. Mm-hmm. It is, but then you're you're just not being rem- remotely honest from a point of reason. Forget revelation from a point of reason and observation, social science about what's possible in that regard. Heal thyself. Uh, I'll take this back to front. Christianity is the ultimate form of syncretism, blending in Christ's teachings with Judaism. Um, well, first of all, Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. Uh, Jesus is not Buddha. He's not Ra, the Egyptian sun god. He is not any number of belief systems. He is Jesus Christ, God's son. And then secondly, in, involved with that, he, he also said, the same Jesus also said, do not come uh, think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is the fulfillment of pure, and I'm using that word intentionally, unadulterated, un, um, untainted uh, Judaism of, of that. He is the fulfillment of the law. So there's that. It is, it's not syncretism, and syncretism is the blending of multiple belief systems to, to, um, to create something new. Uh, by this guy's definition, it was just one belief system, uh, and then Christ as if they were incompatible. And then going back to, uh, we need to resist anything that causes schism between our brothers. Is that uh, anything the, that takes away choice? Takes away choice from our brothers. Uh, that is a self-refuting statement, is it not? If it's taken to its mm-hmm. logical conclusion, we need to resist anything that takes away choice from our brothers. Who? Uh, the first question I would ask is who gets to decide what yep. choice actually means. That's exactly right. Uh, in fact, let me let me pick up what you're laying down and go back to Tim here briefly because you guys laid out the theological aspects of this exceedingly well and why what he's saying is, is actually not compatible with, with us. Um, Christians are actually more about the body of Christ, not a generic brotherhood of man. Why? Because outside of Christ... The body of Christ is true diversity. People of different customs, languages, backgrounds, colors, races, etc., even genders, setting those things aside in order to worship the one true God, to love him uh, with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then love our neighbor as we love ourselves. All right? Um, but without that redemptive agent and force active in our lives that comes only from Christ, we aren't capable of that level of unity. And heck, even when we do have it, we still struggle to maintain it. That's why the word denomination was used here earlier in answer to uh, another email. But to what to Aaron's point, I'm, I don't believe, Tim, that you want to forbid anything that forbids choice. Let me challenge that. If someone decided my choice is to molest children, would you want to forbid them of that choice? If someone said my choice is to kill you, Tim, would you want them to forbid them of that choice? So of course, of course, everybody wants to forbid some people of some choices. The question then becomes, 
as, as Aaron alluded to, by what standard would we know what choices are permitted and which ones are not? One of the most profound theological statements from a modern Christian leader I have ever heard was this one from, this one from Dr. James Dobson. In the end, there are really only two worldviews on planet Earth. God is or he isn't. And within the sphere of God isn't, those seven deadly worldviews are all within the sphere of God isn't. Within that sphere, there's a lot of isms. But they all essentially say the same thing, just in their own way and in conflict with one another at times. They essentially are all saying God isn't. And if God isn't, guess who then is, guys? We are. Because we love to worship nothing more than ourselves. I'm in a seminary, Lee writes. I graduated from a place that specializes in worldview, Grand Rapids Theological, known as Grand Rapids Baptist, when you were growing up here, Steve. I have served as an editor for an apologetics journal, the Christian Research Journal, and, I've, and I'm on the staff at Christianity Today. I have an entire shelf of apologetic books, most of which I've actually read. Based on that, I am listening to your series on the seven deadly worldviews, and I find it absolutely top shelf. What you're doing, what you guys are doing is as solid as anything I've ever encountered, and it's a great service to the kingdom. It has my old church curriculum, Jones, itching. Why not take this and turn it into a series for the local church? After a one-day seminar with James Sire, I heard him urge that we teach worldview in churches, but not call it worldview. What you're doing negates that reluctance from the otherwise great Sire. My proposal, at some later date, take the series out from behind the paywall, or package it with supportive curriculum and discussion guides, and offer it to people at churches. A church could go with just your intro and have Todd and Aaron also contributing mightily to this. That's from Lee Dean in Plainwell, Michigan. And I have had, this has been the most frequent feedback I have received about this, is can this be repurposed? Can this be repackaged? Um, Can this be distributed in a secondary market to get it into the hands of more people? And... um, I want everybody that has sent that to me to know we are having this conversation uh, with the powers that be both at um, my own company here that contracts with CRTV and also CRTV that has um, the exclusive contract on the content that we produce. And there is mutual interest on in uh, making that happen. And what that will look like, we're going to talk about here in the coming weeks and months, but um, the answer to all of you like Lee that have sent this suggestion is... Uh, there is a lot of talk about that and what that could look like. Yeah, and we talked to, this is, I've been thinking about this a little bit too. I think there's opportunity outside of churches to take this on the road right into the lion's den. Agreed. And to use it uh, as a as a departure point that's, uh it, it will hopefully tamp down emotion, at least from the outset, so you're not, let's talk abortion, go. You exactly. will be talking about worldviews, yep. and I think 
you might be surprised at the kind of conversations and outcomes we'd find. I, I agree with that, Aaron. And I mean, you are re- the most recent college student in the room. You've, I'm sure got friends that still are in a university setting. Yep. Um, the, the, the conversation via his email that I just had with Tim, sitting down and asking him, what is, you tell me, I'd like to know, what is the standard by which someone is allowed to make a choice and someone is not? How would we know what that standard is? Where would it come from? Just asking those questions. Yeah. To get to why people think the way they think, do you think that would be a constructive exercise? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, and as Todd said as well, taking this type of thing on the road too, uh, that would be extremely fascinating. And as far as repackaging it, uh, that would be, I think, probably the intro, like um, like this uh, listener said, the intro and maybe the montage if you watch that. And then that's about the typical length of small group um, if you want, yeah, I don't know if you're in a small group, Steve, but you know, watching a video, not currently, but we've been in several, yeah, over the years, watching yeah. a video and then talking about it afterwards, that would be about the perfect length for something like that. So I think this would be great, uh, small group church uh, curriculum if people were interested. This next email goes to your point, Todd, that this has a broader application than specific church settings. Richard Stevens writes, in you guys' secular humanism talk on CRTV, you guys stated it so pithily. I wrote it down, and I'm sharing it with other people, and he's quoting us, quote, give someone access to your guns and your money and tell them you're in charge, and sooner or later, if they don't have a healthy fear of God, they're going to say, maybe you need to have a healthy fear of me. And I do remember when we said that, that is the arc of human history. That is, going back to Tim's email from before, whenever a, whenever a government has attempted to institute that which Tim eloquently described, which you're right, is, John, is, is a variation of a, of a John Lennon's Imagine. What's happened every time a, a government has attempted to do this? What's come next? Tyranny, every time. Every time. Why? Because human nature is not basically good. We have to accept human nature for what it is, not what we had hoped or imagined it would be. And invariably, every time, inevitably, every time, what happens? The people that collect all the guns and money for the purpose of redistributing it to everybody else equally, what do they end up doing with it? Keeping it every time. And then they continue to redistribute your money because they have the guns. This is every George Orwell book ever, guys. The plot. I just gave you the plot. Sometimes it's Goldstein and Big Brother. Sometimes it's Napoleon and Snowball and a bunch of pigs. It's the same plot every time. By the way, Orwell was a liberal, guys. Orwell was a liberal. He wasn't a conservative. Just didn't believe in Marxism. Thought it was a complete and total fallacy. He was offended that it was being, that Marxist social theory was being mixed with his liberal party politics he would have been a who fan meet the new boss same as the old boss that's where he lived i mean he orwell was liberal was more of a liberal because he understood human nature was not basically good there's a difference there if you're a liberal because you don't think human nature is basically good that's where you will think government needs to do for people what they can't do for themselves If you are a liberal because you think human nature is basically good, then you will think government needs to show people what they can and cannot do for themselves. (laughs) Those are two different things, guys. That one is my one is the mom, my mom who had me at 15, 
who voted for one Republican her whole life, Ronald Reagan, in 1980, because she had to admit even her had to admit Jimmy Carter was a failure. And she can't, she couldn't, by the end, she cried the night Obama got elected. Thought we had finally moved to a post-racial America. By the end of his term, she literally would call him a communist at family dinners. Oh, she would still never vote for a Republican. Because she just thinks all the Republicans are out to get, are just out to shield for corporate America. And in too many cases, sadly, she's not wrong. I learned that the hard way, being a Republican. Okay? But this is how she went from crying the night he got elected, Obama, to crying that he got reelected. <laughs> All right? Because, hey, I, I, listen, I, I think we ought to, you know, you know, I think there ought to be Medicare to help people and everything else. But you mean you're going to tell me what doctor I have to have and what coverages? She's, she was a healthcare professional. She was a nurse. She worked in, in emergency rooms. She worked at clinics like a doctor's now or med station. And then she worked uh, in, at health insurance companies. She saw the full gamut. The idea that government would then come in and dictate what everybody's coverages and stuff made a, situ- she, a system she already hated by her experience was going to make it even worse. Is that not what happened? That's exactly what happened. In her mind, there's a long way from government provides food stamps for single moms like her to if you don't raise your kids that Heather has two mommies, then we get, you know, then you're a terrible person. That's a different America to her. That's that's where that's the Orwell perspective. It's one thing to be liberal; it's another thing to be a leftist. Those are different things. There really aren't too many liberals anymore. We should stop using the term. I almost it's never a, they're, use it. They're anymore. leftists. They're Marxists. That's what they are. Yep. And how do you know the difference? The liberal is the guy who was marching against the system who wouldn't let you uh, play your hippie music in the '60s, and is marching against the system that won't let, that won't let you speak out with your conservative views in the 2017s. Well, Steve, there really aren't that many people. There's like James Woods and that's about it. I know! That's why we should stop using the term. All right? It's like calling people pterodactyls. They're practically... That's an extinct creature. It doesn't resonate. There aren't any liberals anymore, guys. There's leftists. If there were this whole uh, bake-the-cake bigot, wouldn't it be happening? No doubt. No freaking doubt. Charlton Heston was a liberal. Why did he change his politics? The transition I'm talking about, hey, that's not, no, I'm not, I'm not anti-American. I, I don't want us to be like the Soviet Union. I think they're uh, uh, monkey poo. No, I don't want us to be like that. That was his transition. Well, could, could, that Ronald was Ronald Reagan's transition. Democrat. Yes, that was Ronald Reagan's transition. He still remains the only president that ever was president, ran a union, a labor union. It was Ronald Reagan. Okay. That was his transition. I've mentioned this book before, and I know some. I know in latter years he's kind of gone off on the Trump lunatic fringe. But in his prime, David, not Daniels, David Horowitz's book, Radical Son from 1996, I cannot recommend it more highly because he lived this transition. He grew up with Marxist sympathizing college professor parents and was one of the Ramparts magazine, the Weathermen, the, the actual hippie movement of the, the counterculture of the 60s. He was part of the transformation of the Democratic Party from a pro-middle class, pro-immigrant, big government party to the Marxist leftist one we see today. And when he saw the, when he began to see the full, the full fruits 
of the worldview coming to fruition. What it would actually do, he's now completely gone over to the other side. Couldn't recommend that book highly enough. Excellent email, Richard. All right, fi- final thoughts. What did we learn this week? What did we learn? Aaron. Oh, goodness. Um, I learned that 2018 is uh, going to be very, <laughs> very fun, actually. I mean, the, 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 I, I can't tell you guys. I, I, the, 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 the reformat of the show, the TV show, and if you're not a subscriber, you need to subscribe so you can see what I'm talking about. That's actually been probably the best development as far as the actual nuts and bolts of the show that we've had since we've started. And I have really enjoyed doing those uh, two-minute or less montages, getting us uh, uh, started on the show every day. Those have been a lot of fun, mostly because they write themselves. Uh, but that's what that's the main thing that I've learned this week, is that 2018 is going to be fun, just so long as we don't take ourselves or anything, most 90% of the news, seriously. Fire up the REM. It's the end of the world as we know yep. it, right? Mm-hmm. And you feel fine. It's the end of the world yep. as we know it, and Aaron feels fine. Yep. It's good Todd, in here. The great feedback we got to the seven deadly worldviews, or quite frankly, to any time we say some of the hard things that need to be said and we get that feedback, it calls to mind one of my favorite scenes in any movie and it's also one of my children's favorite movies so they get to see this and i i impress upon them how important it is to think about it it's at the very end of the lion the witch in the wardrobe and the kids stumble out of the wardrobe and the thing that led them in in the first place was uh, hitting a cricket ball through a window so the professor comes in and he and he knows something about Narnia because he mm-hmm. was there when he was a boy and he mm-hmm. and he looks at him inquisitively and he says what were you doing in the wardrobe and Peter says to him sir I don't think you'd believe me if I told you and he gets this wonderful smile on his face and he just says try, try me. me yes that's <clears throat> folks that's it live your faith be not afraid. Try it in terms of how you live it in your personal life. Try it in terms of putting that message out there for others to hear. You're not always going to get what you uh, uh, want to hear in the moment, but leave that to God. He's got it. Well said, both of you. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast here today. Don't forget CRTV.com, promo code DACE, to watch the DACE Group Roundtable here at CRTV. We will be back at it again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like it, you.